0: One of the things I really fought against in my early career was when people would say I was optimistic as if it was a dirty word. I always found that shocking because I was raised bar singing. I had been being propositioned by men since I was eight. I had seen the greediest, seediest elements of humanity. I'd seen people get leveraged my whole life. And I remember making this thing saying, I'm going to write the most honest songs I can. I'm going to find a place to sing and i'm going to just tell the truth and i'm not going to cover it up it's funny talking about it like makes me get emotional like i remember that time so well of how frightening that was that decision and how committed i was and how much courage it took for me Dream life.
1: Jewel began singing when she was just a kid. She performed mostly in bars with her parents as a family singing group touring around Alaska's tourist attractions. Her mom left when she was 8 years old, and Jewel decided to leave home when she was 15. Her dad suffered from alcoholism and could be abusive. Jewel began to support herself and even put herself through a prestigious art high school in Michigan. Jewel was living in her car again when she was discovered at 19. And in 1995, at the age of 21, she released her first album, Pieces of
0: You.
1: I don't think I'm alone when I say that that album had a profound impact on girls everywhere. It came at the height of grunge and through the domination of Nirvana and Ace of Bass and smooth R&B groups. This heart-wrenching lyricist, a young girl who sang exactly what she saw, When I told my friends I'd be talking to Jewel for the women, I was flooded with text messages, all of them recalling what it felt like to hear someone singing about emotions, heartache, isolation, and inequality, exactly as they saw it and experienced it themselves. Pieces of You didn't chart immediately, and after two years, when Jewel became Bob Dylan's opener, her single Who Will Save Your Soul finally got played on the radio. Well, since then, Pieces of You has gone platinum, selling over 12 million copies, making it one of the most successful debut albums. And it's even been listed in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And Jewel describes how songwriting really opened up this whole new world for her. It was my first taste of vulnerability. It was my first
0: taste in the power and the freedom that the courage to be vulnerable allows you.
1: Welcome to The Women, a production of iHeartRadio and myself, Rose Reed. Today, I'm speaking with Jewel Kilcher. Originally from Alaska, Jewel has released a dozen albums, over two dozen singles, and has published several memoirs. Her interest has been on her journey from homelessness to fame, and over the past decade, she's focused on breaking the stigmas around mental health, making resources and tools and strategies more accessible.
0: Mental health has been, I believe, our world's biggest crisis Because if you look at issues that seem very unrelated, let's say Me Too and gun violence, or uh, opioid addiction and suicide rates, or apathy and environmental pollution, um, they seem like really different causes. But to me, the underlying thing, the elegant solution
1: is mental health. And during the COVID outbreak, Jewel has been raising money for homeless youth, live streaming concerts in partnership with her Never Broken charity. Music and songwriting are still a passion for her. She just released a new single, Grateful, and has a new album that's coming out. But her primary focus has always been very clear to her.
0: I will do this if I make myself one promise that my number one job is to figure out how to be happy still. My number two job is to figure out how to be a musician.
1: I spoke to Jewel over the phone and I wanted to know how her pursuit, her pursuit to write songs and to sing and just be happy, where that really began in her adolescence.
0: I moved out at 15. I came from an abusive background. I I didn't want to be a statistic. I resented the fact that, to me, the best form of rebellion was figuring out how to be happy. And I took it seriously and I really attacked it. It was always, how do I figure out how to be happy?
1: You know, um, sometimes I'm I'm actually put off by how celebrities um, talk about mental health. Sometimes it can come across as tone deaf, but I have to say that one thing that isn't superficial when you talk about it is that you share so much of yourself and um, a lot of details about your own personal story.
0: Yeah. One of the things I really fought against in my early career was when people would say I was optimistic as if it was a dirty word the reason it was thought of as a dirty word was because the word naive followed quickly thereafter. And I always found that shocking because I was raised bar singing. I had been being propositioned by men since I was eight, you know, I'd have a man put a dime in my hand and fold my fingers around it and say, call me when you're 18, you're going to be great to fuck when you're older. Jesus Christ. I had seen the greediest, seediest elements of humanity. You know, um, I ended up living in my car because I wouldn't have sex with a boss, uh, I'd seen people get leveraged my whole life. I had seen people try to leverage me my whole life. So that's how you...
1: Yeah. That's how you ended up living in your car, being homeless? That was the actual catalyst? When I wouldn't sleep with my
0: boss. Yeah, it was funny. In the press, somehow that time in my life was depicted as I was wanting to live my dreams and I lived in my car for my music. That was not the case. I was working at a computer warehouse, barely making ends meet, uh, supporting my mom who was sick. And my boss propositioned me and... I joked it off, and I went in for my paycheck the next day, and he wouldn't pay me, wouldn't talk to me, wouldn't look at me, oh my God. ignored me like I was a ghost in the office. Like, you do that, and he just kept looking at his papers. Um, and I left knowing I was going to get kicked out of where I was living. My rent was late, and my landlord, I was just late so often in my rent. I knew that was it. And so I knew leaving that, you know, I cried in the parking lot in my car, being like, how do I tell literally my sick mother that we have to move out of our place And that's when I started living in my car and I thought, no big deal, it'll be a couple months. I'll get back on my feet, I'll get a new job. But I was sick and I was having panic attacks and I had kidney problems. I actually almost died in the parking lot in an emergency room hospital because they wouldn't see me because I didn't have insurance. And uh, I just knew I was really sick, I was throwing up. Later a doctor said that was sepsis. Um, But a doctor had seen me get turned away and he came out and tapped on my window and I was covered in my own vomit. In the passenger seat because I was too sick to drive anywhere. And he saved my life. He gave me antibiotics, like sample kit of antibiotics. And it saved my life. Things just really declined for me.
1: And and is this when you began to shoplift?
0: Because I was during this time I was shoplifting. uh, Mostly food. But I remember one day I was in a store and I was trying to steal a dress. And I saw my reflection in the mirror. I was trying to shove this... White, flowery, pretty, clean dress into my baggy 501s. And I realized, like, in one sudden moment, like I was going to end up in jail or dead if I didn't figure something out. I vowed when I was eight to never drink or do drugs because I saw these drunks in bars trying to cover up pain. Things were getting weird. Um, You know, my dad became abusive. It was getting complex, complicated, but at least my journal was there where I committed to myself to at least witnessing myself honestly. Not because I wanted to be a writer, but because I found that type of honesty riveting and liberating. And I realized, you know, a lot of us, when we're young, we start changing our behaviors to get love. But my response, stealing, gave me a reward. It made me feel in control. It made me feel powerful. It was very exciting. And so I committed myself to seeing if I could get addicted to something healthy. So I started committing myself to writing. And so I was going to reverse engineer up into my thoughts by watching my hands and taking studious notes. My hands are small, I know they're not yours, they are my own. And I wasn't able to change behaviors right away, but I just committed to noticing them, not shaming myself, not disassociating, but just witnessing what they did and writing them down. But with, I'd say pretty shortly in two or three weeks, I had to just every time, you know, I wanted to steal, made myself right. And then my body got sensitized to a very different reward. My body felt different than when I stole. When I stole, it was exciting and my whole body contracted. But when I wrote, everything dilated. And then I started noticing that there were those two states and it just became this very productive year for me where I just, I learned so much really through observation
1: Wow, it's crazy for me to think that this is what you were going through when you were writing the songs for Pieces of You. I still have that CD in my CD case. And I just looked at it recently, and I saw that I had written my name on Aww. it, so, <laughs> so it no works. one could steal it and think that it's theirs. I wrote Rose Reed on the white part. I, of course, would never write over your face. <laughs> I feel like on that album, even with the first song, you were telling the world exactly who you are. And who will save your soul? the opening song? Your voice changes really quickly, and you give us this full range. You sing with your head, you sing with your throat, and it comes out nasally. At times you're almost whispering. I think that's something that's really defined you is this kind of honest exposition.: When I was homeless, I was so alone.
0: And I remember making this very like oof, courageous, very conscious thing saying, I'm going to write the most honest songs I can. I'm going to find a place to sing and I'm going to just tell the truth and I'm not going to cover it up. It's funny talking about it like makes me get emotional. Like I remember that time so well of how frightening that was, that decision and how committed I was and how much courage it took for me. Um, when you grow up bar singing, you sing five hour sets. So I thought I had to do five hour sets in this coffee shop I found. And so I wrote a lot of material and I remember there was two people, there was two surfers and I sang a five hour set to two surfers and I, it was like, you might as well have just cut my veins open. And like, I just emotionally vomited all over that stage. It was ugly and beautiful and honest and wretched and all kinds of things. And uh, bless those guys' hearts. They came up to me, they had tears in their eyes. I remember. And they're like, we didn't know other people felt like this. And I had tears in my eyes and I didn't know other people felt like this either. And it was my first taste of vulnerability. It was my first taste in the power and the freedom that the courage to be vulnerable allows you. And it was addictive. Like that was addictive. And I never really looked back. I, I just decided to try and always tell the ugly truth um, and what a weight it took off of my shoulders.
1: You know, one thing that I wanted to ask you, I noticed that... There's audience clapping at the end of some of the songs on Pieces of You. Was this your choice? Were they recorded live? Uh, what's the story with that?
0: I sucked in the studio is what that was. Um, <laughs> I was terrible in the studio. I was so self-conscious. I grew up, you know, live singing my whole life. Yeah. Guitar was new. I'd only learned it a couple years prior to that record.
1: Um, so and I, so you learned guitar on your own, not not at home with your family.
0: Yeah, I learned guitar when I went away when I was probably 16. Uh, Who'll Save Your Soul was the first song I wrote because I wanted to hitchhike across America and through Mexico for spring breaks. I couldn't afford to get back to Alaska from where I was going to school in Michigan. Uh, I realized you weren't allowed to stay on campus for spring break or winter break. And so I asked my dad to ship a guitar down. He had an extra guitar and he shipped it to me. And I just thought I'd learn a few chords and I would improvise lyrics on streets um, to earn money to get across the country. And so I learned a minor CG and D in that order. (laughs) And then I just started making up lyrics and some lyrics would kind of stick and I'd remember them and write them down and, I took this whole two-week adventure hopping trains through Mexico and hitchhiking through Mexico and made it back to school and just kept writing. Who Will Save Your Soul was probably 300 verses or something. And it was my first song and I just fell in love. Like, I just fell in love with songwriting. It just felt really good.
1: You know, even in your earliest videos, we can see you playing the acoustic guitar. And while you've been doing your quarantine concerts, you always make sure that the audience can see you play. So over the past few decades, you've made a really conscious decision, it seems, for people to see you physically playing the guitar.
0: I never thought I was a particularly proficient guitar player, especially when I was young, like in the studio. I did feel confident in my ability to make people feel things. Um, I did feel confident in truth, and that nothing is more riveting than the truth. Um, If you can figure out how to find the right combination of words and vocal tone and guitar chords and create that whole thing together, you can viscerally impact people. Um, That's a really beautiful, very powerful thing. It's a powerful thing for a woman. It's something I hope every woman can feel. Uh, So I felt confident in that. It took me a long time to realize and other musicians being around me to start to value my guitar style or my, my style of playing. When I got signed and discovered, I almost didn't sign my record deal because that authenticity and that honesty, I I made this, again, a real conscious decision of, I will do this if I make myself one promise that my number one job is to figure out how to be happy still. My number two job is to figure out how to be a musician.
1: You were so young when you were first negotiating this big first contract. And if I'm not mistaken, you were actually in a really interesting position. you had two major record labels that were vying for you. Is that correct?
0: I became the biggest bidding war of the year. Every record label started driving down limousines, taking me out to dinner, flying me to New York. Um,
1: yeah, and there was a big bidding war over me. So how did you make that choice what to do with that negotiation? Because you ended up signing with Atlantic Records.
0: I was a avid reader. Um, so as soon as record labels started coming, I did some research in the library and found a book called everything you need to know about the music business. And I read it and I learned about mechanicals and royalties back in, and I learned what an advance was. Uh, it's not free money. It's a loan. It's like taking out a loan that you do owe back. And the bidding war got to such a crazy pitch. I was offered a million dollar signing bonus as a homeless kid. But when I read the book and realized that that was basically what I equated to putting a bounty on my head, I had a million-dollar bounty on my head. I had a million-dollar expectation. Wow. And I had to earn it back and pay it back through record sales. That seems impossible. I felt like I needed to grow slowly. I felt like I needed to take the bounty off my head. Because of my commitment to authenticity, I knew I was going to make a folk record at the height of grunge. The odds of that working are so slim. And I was very realistic about it. Um, The odds of that working, I heard the radio. Nothing was like me on the radio. I just, I hoped to have a simple career like John Prine. I wanted to be a great artist, a great songwriter. I knew that would be a lifetime's dedication. It's not handed to you, you know. Um, I just was starting writing. I wasn't that good yet. And so I turned down the bonus and took the biggest back end um, anybody had been given. So I just sort of leveraged that hype that I had into a really large back end deal, which basically means if I sold records, I would earn a lot of money and it would take this bounty off of my head. And that ended up saving my career like, multiple times. Uh, first year, I didn't sell any records, I didn't get any traction, I didn't get on the radio. It was a big fat zero. I was turned away and laughed out of every radio station, out of every establishment. People had a violent reaction to my lyrics and what they called naive Pollyanna lyrics, um, how stupid my lyrics were. Um, (laughs) Oh, my God. And I had to gut it out. I think I did a thousand shows a year, probably. I was doing three to six shows a night or a day, one to two cities a day. Um, it was a grind, and my label definitely would have had to drop me because it took over a year and a half for that
1: to begin to make any traction.
0: We grow fat on
1: Coming up, how Jewel handled her sudden fame and later discovered that her mom, who had been her manager for more than a decade, had stolen millions from her. That's coming up after the break. In 1997, about two years after Jules' debut album came out, her single, Who Will Save Your Soul, topped the charts. And suddenly she was everywhere late night TV shows, on MTV. You may recall seeing her videos on VH1, and she has her acoustic guitar in many of them. There are lots of close ups on her face, and she sings directly into the camera. She was in her early 20s when she was catapulted into the spotlight.
0: So when I Cool Save Your Soul finally became a hit, I remember being terrified, like, holy heck, I didn't mean to write Cool Save Your Soul. I didn't mean to write a hit. Mm -hmm. It just happened. And what if I can never do this again? Well, I went on to sell 12 million records and it dawned on me. I was like, you can either perceive this as a lot of pressure to do it over and over, or you can realize you never have to do it again. Like if I save my money, I'm free for life. I won the effing lottery. You know, it worked and I get to do whatever the F I want.
1: You know, I've never heard an artist talk this candidly about money in this way, like ever.
0: I don't know. Um, So I was like, I get freedom. And you chose freedom. I get freedom. I bought with that million in advance um, and with that back end. And if I kept my money smart... I got to do whatever I wanted as an artist. I never had to have another hit. And I really worked hard to give myself, you have to get to this place of internal permission of would my ego be okay if I didn't have another hit, right? Because now it's not a money issue. Now you have to like make sure that your self-worth isn't tied up in an outward source, right? If our, if we put our self-worth outside of ourselves and that could be taken away at any time, you're in a dangerous spot.
1: Um, Your mom was your manager for like over a decade. And then you found out she had actually stolen millions of dollars from you. Since then, you've cut off almost all contact with her. Um, can, Can you describe that chapter in your life and how you dealt with that betrayal and how you went about healing from it?
0: My mom was my manager in the beginning of my career. I remember when I called her, she was in Alaska and I was like, mom, you're not going to believe it. Record labels are coming to see me. And she's like, I'll be right there to help you. And it's so predictable. Like the movie, this Lifetime movie is so predictable. I didn't see it at all, though. Um, I was desperate for my mom's love, all the things you can imagine. It. I wrote about it in my book called Never Broken because it really did take 350 pages to describe my relationship with my mom. It was complex. It was... Um, would the right word be it was subterranean I didn't understand all the emotions that were playing on me I didn't really see who she was it was a deep betrayal and deception of what I believed her to be and what she was and what I thought about my life and it at this height of really did you
1: did you find out over time or or was there a moment an incident where you discovered that she was actually stealing from you
0: It was over time. Things weren't quite right. Things weren't quite adding up. Um, It was kind of a long, slow slide. And then finally, an undeniable amount of information to be like, oh, there's no way to explain this. Um, And I realized like right before this record launched that I knew was going to be really controversial, possibly alienate people. I realized I needed the money. I realized I was millions in debt and I had to have this work. And I was promoting a product. God forbid a female singer-songwriter did that. So it was gut-wrenching and sad and horrible. And I remember I needed to do this tour really bad. Thank God, Intuition did good. I mean, it, it was a top hit on the pop charts and I was about to do a big, huge shed tour that I really needed, but I I was gonna have a psychological breakdown, like I couldn't do it. And so I chose my mental health and I didn't do the tour and I turned the money down and trusted that if I take care of my health and my mental health and my emotional
1: health, that things will work out. Um, that's what I did. There are a few lines in your opening poem and your memoir, Never Broken, where you say, quote, I spent a lifetime being small for those closest to me, but this is not the woman my son will know. What did you mean by that? Um,
0: many of us, whether we're male or female, believe we have to make concessions in exchange for love. When I had my child, it hit me like a ton of bricks in a whole new way. And I, it was pretty awful to, you know, give birth and look at your child and go, oh, holy hell, I'm not the woman I need him to know yet. It, it, it was a whole new path in front of me to get out of my marriage <laughs> and rebuild in a whole new way um, so that my life as art could be as courageous as my art was. Uh, and I love that. I love that we're all artists of our lives. I love that our life should be our greatest work of art. And our jobs are just part of it. And our parenting is part of it. And our partnership is part of it. They're all an expression of this artwork. But it comes from inside. It's sculpting. It's refining. It's getting rid of things that don't belong to us. It's a it's a real dedication, a real practice, and one that excited me in a whole new way once I had my son.
1: You've written across genres, and that goes for your collaborations and performances, too. You've opened for folk stars like Bob Dylan, icons like Johnny Cash. You wrote a song with country singer Dolly Parton. You've made a holiday album. And your most recent single, Grateful, is almost bluesy. But one thing that seems constant to me is that there's always an emphasis on your lyrics, no matter what genre you're writing in.
0: At the time, you know, when I made my pop record, for instance, it was, again, because 90s, you know, credibility was everything. A pop singer could promote products. A songwriter couldn't, right? So you might see Madonna promote something, but you'd never see Bruce Springsteen do it. And I found that interesting um, and I wanted to make a pop record. And so I made a pop record and it was perceived as a sellout, which to me was funny to me, selling out would have been doing your Meant for me over and over and over and trying to be the image other people want you to be. That's a sellout in my eyes. To me, this was like, this could ruin everything. And I knew it, but I couldn't not do it. Like I had to do it. Um, and I remember I was one of the big, just, you know, legends in our business, very respected whom I respect as well. Greatly uh, called me into his office. I had no idea why I was like, does he want me to write for somebody, you know? And I sat down, I shake his hand and he was, I could tell he was in a bad mood. And I sit in this chair across from him and he doesn't wait a second. He goes, nobody wants this generation's Joni Mitchell to wear a mini skirt. You knock it the fuck off. I was like, wow
1: (laughs) that was strong
0: and that was really the response is you can't be sexy and smart you can't wear a miniskirt you you can't be credible and do pop music and I just found all of that shocking you know it was a really turbulent time in my career that coincided with me finding out I was broke so I took one of the biggest musical risks of my life because I was like I got money anyway it doesn't matter if it works like I have to follow my muse and uh my label never pushed me to, to try and be with a poppy or producer, it was really up to me. They never had an influencer ad told me how to dress um, or anything like that.
1: I wanted to ask you about your experience becoming famous at such a young age. Taylor Swift recently said in her documentary that she feels like you almost get stuck in time at the age that you got famous. Um, Another example I'm thinking of, Madonna won't perform songs that she wrote decades ago. She says, like, she feels like I did that and that part of my life is over. How do you balance that? being in the public light and having been a musician for decades and getting famous at 21.
0: Fame is hard. People in my job kill themselves at alarming rates, suicide and drugs. It's uh, it's not a healthy business we're in. When I first came out, I knew because I was so young I'm, I'm voraciously forward moving. Uh, I'm relentlessly and apologetically forward moving. So for me, it was really letting my fan base know that out of the gate. Um, you get to develop and cultivate your fan base. You get a say, you get to create each other. And so because it was the dawn of the internet, I did have an ability to go online for the very first time in music history and say, these are the things I care about. I'm a songwriter. Um, I won't always be famous but I hope to be doing this 60 years. So if I could help, you know, our industry in one way, it would be to put psychological health high up on the priority list because that golden goose, if you will, won't be able to stay around very long if they self-implode.
1: Jewel gives us a tip on how to ride a horse and survive in Alaska. That's coming up after the break.
0: When you're standing in deep water Bailing yourself out of the straw mm-hmm.
1: I like to do a quick fire a lightning round at the end of the interview. It's called Truth or Truth. We go light after we go deep. Mm -hmm. So here we go. I wanted to ask you, what is one tip that you would give people who are learning to ride a horse?
0: Breathe. Uh, Horses feel tension, tightness. So if you relax and you just come into harmony with the horse, you'll figure it all out pretty
1: quickly. You're a native in Alaska. Your grandparents on both sides are from Alaska. You've had to ton of experience with summers where the sun actually never sets. How does one handle the all-day daylight of sunlight in an Alaskan summer? Put
0: tinfoil on your windows.
1: (laughs) For your single Grateful that's out right now, did you choose the organ for that opening? The song opens with like this organ sound and Um, really has a bluesy feel. Were you listening to a lot of blues music?
0: I grew up listening to a lot of many genres of music. Uh, R&B, 70s R&B was one of my favorites. And so this record has a really strong 70s R&B influence. I haven't been able to show that side of myself or of my singing yet. I wanted to push myself vocally in a way people haven't heard me sing before. And I wanted things to have a really natural feel. I love the organ. It always makes me feel like I'm in church. Uh, So it just felt like the right thing for that song.
1: So this isn't a question, but I wanted to end with uh, sharing something with you. Before I did this interview today, I got messages from some of my friends, close to like a dozen girls, um, friends of mine who wrote me about their jewel memories. And a lot of them are still following your music and we're all really excited for your upcoming album. One of them described this memory she had of belting hands, which gave her comfort and feeling like she felt wonderful in her own awkwardness. Another said she loved how you appeared to be more interested in being thoughtful rather than being sexy. Mm -hmm. And another friend said that, Pieces of You was the first CD that she had bought with her own money and she felt like she was an adult doing that and she was an adult listening to it in her own world, um, something that was totally her own and I know that I can relate to that and so many people who grew up kind of with this gift of having your music and your lyrics can have that too so just wanted to say thanks
0: wrong. makes me very happy, thank you when i can find my
1: soul. to find out more about jewel and how to make happiness a habit Darkness go to www.jewelneverbroken.com that's Neverbroken, all one word.com she has simple mindfulness exercises including how to learn to meditate Thank you so much for listening to this first season of The Women. The Women is a production of iHeartRadio and myself, your host, Rose Reed. Holly Fry is our executive producer. This episode was mixed by Adrian Lilly. A very special thanks to Nora and Harvey Kipnis, Matthew Reed, and especially Gail Reed. Couldn't have done it without you. You can find our show on Instagram at Pod. And you can binge the entire first season. All 26 episodes are out. If you haven't heard Katie Couric talk about sexism, Valerie Plame describe how her covert CIA identity was leaked by the Bush White House, or Stacey Abrams about her future in Americas, go back to our archives. And if you're enjoying The Women, please leave us a review or tell a friend. It really helps the show grow. We'll be back in August with new interviews and we'll keep you updated over the summer please take care for more podcasts from iheart radio visit the iHeartRadio radio app apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows thank you do you mind if i take a screenshot of this of our conversation and i can post it it's totally okay if you don't i have no to. idea what i look like but sure <laughs> well like a little teeny
0: you look pretty fucking good oh good let's do it <laughs>